welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Joshua Smythe. He's a distinguished professor of biobehavioral health and medicine at Penn State University and the Hershey Medical Center. And he serves as associate director of Penn State's Social Science Research Institute. He's an internationally recognized expert on ambulatory assessment and intervention with a focus on the interplay of stress, emotion, physiology, and behavior in everyday life. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Josh, um, thank you for being on the show. Josh is what is a remarkable guest. I'm pretty excited, very excited to have him on board. And I've been following his work for probably over t- at least 20 years. And he's worked with Dr. James Pennybaker on the expressive writing. He's also a colleague of Dr. Daniel Wegner. And those of you that are on, listening to my podcast regularly know that I'll use the word obsessed <laughs> with these people's work because they're just a brilliant psychologists, but they've also gotten the heart of a lot of problems we have as human beings. So um, Dr. Smythe is at the um, Penn State, and he's a distinguished professor of biobehavioral health and medicine, and he has a wide range of interest in work. And the reason I'm talking to him today is about these obsessive thought patterns that, um, that sort of torture all of us, and it's really basic part of the human existence and frustrations. And we're not going to come close to the depth of his insights, but I just want to get an introduction today and uh, we'll get started. So um, Josh, could you just uh, give us, that was a very limited introduction. Could you give us a little more depth to what you do? And welcome. Uh, My pleasure. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me on. Uh, It's always a wonderful opportunity to talk more about these important issues. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I am trained as a psychologist, and broadly, I self-identify as what we call a health psychologist. And so I study mind-body medicine. I, I'm interested in the juxtaposition of psychological, social, and behavioral factors on the one hand, and, and medical processes and outcomes on the other. And so I, I broadly attempt to understand how we perceive and respond to our world, and with a particular focus on our psychological states, such as stress and mood, as well as uh, our thoughts and behaviors that result from, from our experiences and how those may shape uh, both sort of short-term and long-term trajectories of risk and resilience in terms of our overall health and, and well-being, whether we're generally healthy to begin with and we're trying to optimize and become better versions of ourselves, or whether we're really struggling with the physical or mental or, or, or external challenge of some sort and trying to get through it relatively unscathed. So the part I'd like to focus on right from the beginning and get a very wide range of experience is that there's a paper published in 1987 that's named White Bears, published by Dr. Daniel Wegner. And I don't remember, were you part of that particular project at the time? No, no, I wasn't on that. It was a wonderful classic paper though. So it's a classic paper showing that when you try not to think about something, you think about it more. And it turned out that the, that the more well-meaning people in life have more of, a, more of a problem with this. And so I wrote a website post called Your Demons Are Robots, because every well-intentioned person, these crazy thoughts come into your head. Of course, you suppress them. Well, what inadvertently happened, you just gave them neurological attention and reinforced them. So from a neuroplasticity standpoint, you're actually reinforcing things when you try to suppress them. So we know 
unpleasant thoughts. And I guess the research term is unpleasant repetitive thoughts. Is that correct? URTs. Yeah. yeah. And and that's something that you've worked on quite a bit, correct? That's right. Could, could you define a URT for the yes. audience? Yes, such a, a an awkward acronym. ERT. We don't we don't like right. the sound of that. Um, the idea here is we all think and um, thinking about something can be very good. And uh, we would generally think about that as problem solving, right? That's how I get through things. I think about them uh, and I feel better. I have a good outcome, what have you. And then people started realizing boy, that doesn't always happen. And sometimes when we think about things, uh, I get worse, I feel worse. And so really, I think even before the work on thought suppression, you know, uh, Susan Nolan Hoeksema studied uh, thought patterns in patients with major depression and, and found that uh, there was a certain style of uh, sort of depressogenic rumination. So a, a way of thinking that just actually made things worse. And, and from that and other lines of work, people really tried to figure out what discriminates, what separates productive, constructive, problem-solving thinking, uh, insight-oriented thought from those that are uh, unconstructive. And as uh, is uh, foreshadowed by the name, one of the key features is the idea that the thoughts are repetitive. And there's a couple of features in there. So baked into that concept of repetitive is not simply that they happen over and over, but that they're relatively unchanging. So I'm thinking the same things without much progress or insight uh, or other sort of benefit from the thought. So it's the repetitive, it's unchanging. And interestingly, it's unwanted. You know, these are not volitional. It's not, I'm choosing to sit down and think about something, uh, but we might call those unwanted repetitive thoughts or uh, uh, intrusions is another sort of, of, of way people talk about this. And so here it's now the idea that things are particularly bad when I'm thinking about them. I think about them a lot. My thoughts don't change much and they pop into my head. And, and that's the crux of the, uh, you know, this, this surprising paradox of thought suppression that I, I do think of something and I don't want to be thinking about it. Either I feel it's not the right place or time, or it makes me feel bad or angry or upset. And so I willfully try to push it out of my head. And as you noted, what that seminal work by Wagner and others found was that the harder you push, the more likely it is to sort of rebound and pop back in your head. And uh, I've sort of argued we can even further think about that as a dynamic process. And so how do you feel the second time when it pops back into your head? Well, now, in addition to everything bad about it the first time, you realize you failed. Uh, so now I feel less in control. I'm now angry or, or frustrated or upset with myself on top of it. And so we start to layer on more negativity uh, and particularly negativity directed towards the self, uh, which can exacerbate these things even further. So then what you've done, you have a unpleasant thought that you've now suppressed, you feel badly, which is physiology. 
And so now you're making, you're creating more complexity to those thoughts, correct? I mean, the whole neurological pattern, becomes more complex because you're now connecting these thoughts with sensations. So what happens from my perspective, I developed a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder. I had what's called internal OCD, where I wasn't hand-washing or going up and down stairs, et cetera, but it was thought counter thought that never stopped. It, it, it was, and then towards the end of it, they started becoming almost visual. So um, it was really extreme. It was the most miserable part of my whole chronic pain experience. And when I talk to my patients carefully now, I find out that the mental pain is a much bigger problem than the physical pain. They're processed in a similar region of the brain. You have the same chemical response. But with these obsessive thought patterns, it keeps your physiology fired up. And since you can't escape your thoughts, people start getting sick. So what are your thoughts on that sequence? Yeah. Uh, the neuroscience of sort of thoughts and memories uh, is, is, of course, very complex and has emerged uh, early work, you know, about sort of social pain and mirror neurons and, and things. Uh, and now we've moved a little bit away from sort of the region approach, regions of interest-based approach, and, and to networks and functional. But I, at, at the risk of oversimplifying a bit, I, I think um, it is fairly clear that there are sort of memories or experiences or mental representations of different kinds. And some of those representations are fairly generic and what we might uh, call uh, semantic memory. It's sort of our rules and broad understanding of the world, but those things, and that might include my understanding of my health or my the way my brain works or the way I think. Um, but but again, somewhat oversimplifying, those uh, thoughts or memories are relatively stripped of specifics and relatively stripped of emotion. Uh, and so we can access those um, somewhat dispassionately and without much reaction physiologically. In contrast, uh, you saw this coming, uh, there's another sort of class of, of uh, thoughts or memories that uh, are sort of supercharged and they have a lot of associated emotion. Uh, they may be uh, also partially activating visual cortex and visual imagery, somatosensory cortex, right? So, so physical sensations, and these can be sort of relatively flashbulb-like or just incredibly immersive. But the idea is they're very experiential and they're very specific, very different. And those have a relatively dramatic physiological uh, correlates. So when I am thinking about those things, my body really responds in ways that are accordant with that experience. And, uh, if that experience uh, or thought or representation is, is powerfully negative, whether physical or social pain or, or something negative, my body will respond as if it's under threat of harm. And over time, uh, as you suggest, uh, that, that may increase, it may elaborate uh, and become more, more serious. We also know that um, we are likely to uh, recall uh, experiences, particularly in an unwanted way. So not effortfully trying to remember something, but why 
Why do I get an intrusion? Why do I get an unwanted thought of something? There's lots of reasons, but typically it's some sort of trigger. And we used to think about that as a very concrete external trigger. Someone says something to me or I, I see a, a, a setting or a reminder. But what we're realizing now is that those triggers can be relatively subtle. They can be learned associations. They can be emotional. And that, uh, so if I get upset or angry for some completely unrelated reason, I may start to have intrusions about other uh, events or experiences that have made me upset or angry even if there's no explicit connection between them. The connection in this case is the affective one. And, and how that plays out and what specifically functions as a, as a semantic or an emotional cue, sort of how we think about it, of course is highly variable between people, but it, it underscores, uh, I think, the sort of this dynamic recursive sort of ongoing relationship between our thoughts and feelings that aren't sort of, they don't end as soon as they're over. Uh, we experience them and we have sort of this, this unobservable, largely unobservable legacy of those experiences that can give rise to, to repeated uh, triggering of those in the future. So you said that you said something to me just put a huge light bulb off, bulb off in my head because <clears throat> I'm going to get, if you um, I'm the king of over, oversimplifying things. I remember, remember, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, so we're the key. We're the kings of simplifying things. So please correct me if I'm just way off base. So if you think about something that comes up over and over again, of course, that's ruminating thought. Why that's unpleasant, and if you try not to think about it, not to think about it, you actually think about it more. So it's like spinning a basketball on your finger. You're still giving it neurological attention, whether you think it or try not to think about it. You're still putting neurological attention into that thought. It was really disturbing, again, going to this essay that we'll talk about more called The Seed of Our Undoing. It's the most well-intentioned conscientious people that have trouble with this because they have more thoughts they consider disturbing. That being said, all of us have these random, incredibly despicable, unspeakable thoughts that, of course, you're going to toss them aside and you, they come up again and you keep tossing them aside over and over again. And then eventually what we call demons are actually who you are not. It's sort of a neurological trick. Is that a fair statement? Or is that too over? Is that getting really simple, oversimplified? And let me say one more oversimplification here. So I've now concluded, I know there's books written about this, but to me, thoughts expressed or repressed that are unpleasant are the threat. And when you have the physiology, what you feel is what we call emotions. Is that a fair statement? Uh, yeah, the, the, um, at some level, emotion, of course, is our subjective state. And right. it's multiply determined by lots of things. And, um, you know, there's been decades, if not hundreds uh, of years of arguing about whether emotion comes first or our physiology or our brain states come first, you know, chicken and egg. Right. Uh, I think most modern theories sort of talk about those two co-creating our experiences. So we have some combination of sort of experience and we look around and we try to make sense of things and that shapes the labels. Um, there's a whole host of, of challenges about sort of how we describe versus how we actually experience. And so right. we, mo we may both be using the same words, but have very different feelings, uh, experiences, or, or conversely, we may experience the same thing, but use different words. So there's a whole host of complexities uh, 
when we're trying to talk about and understand and frankly study, you know, in our research world, we have great challenges in, you know, how do we measure and understand these subjective states? But I think absolutely, uh, again, a, a simple idea of right, the, the, the willful attempt to suppress is conceptually adding energy. Um, and there has been a, 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 you know, many other lines of work that are supportive of this. So people have studied keeping secrets, right? So I'm, I know something and I'm not going to tell other people. Right. And it turns out you can do this in very clever, you know, psychologists can be very clever and they'll, they'll do experiments. So I'll tell uh, two people the same information and tell one of them, you may not share this with anyone else and tell the other one, yeah, if you want to share it, that's no problem. So the content is identical, but one is sort of forced to inhibit, to, to hide. And uh, they find this uh, agitating, uh, wow. both physiologically and mentally. It requires ongoing effort because I know I'm not doing something. But the person who has the same experience, the same knowledge, the same factoid, uh, however salacious it may be, isn't draining if I'm not trying to uh, hide it. And so I think that's one of the, the, the core issues here is that I might have an awful distressing thought. And if I truly just let it go, if it slides off of me, I'm fine. The problem is when it doesn't. And then I try to make it go away. And that takes arousal and creates this uh, setting event, as we call it, that then, and sometimes, by the way, in fairness, we can be successful in that. We don't always fail, uh, but many times we do. That's that ironic effect where it sort of pops in. And part of the reason is we're aroused, right? We're cue sensitized. So then anything that reminds me, my brain sort of says, this seems to be something important to you. It's trying to help me out, my, my, my big helpful brain. And then it latches on. It says, oh, look, it's that thing again. I'm like, no, I didn't want to think about that. I'm going to try harder now. And we cycle into this. And, and you know, one of the, uh, and again, this is, you know, nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, at its core, many of the contemplative and meditative traditions uh, are focused on this core issue, right? It's that it's not that you can't have a thought. It's that it's the response to that thought that that's troubling. Right, right. So the thing what you said that really lit me up here a second ago is that for, I mean, two years ago, I just did not really understand the physiology of threat. And I forget about the immune system being part of this whole thing, even though I learned it in medical school. And so under threat of any kind, physical or mental, your immune system fires up and you're throwing off inflammatory proteins called cytokines all over your entire body which speeds up nerve conduction, which increases your pain, but also your glial cells in the brain are throwing off cytokines, which sensitizes your brain. So you're just sensitized all the way around. So you feel the pain more. But what you just said is that we also feel mental pain more. And again, I know in my journey out of OCD that it wasn't until I crossed the anger threshold that things truly went away. In other words, my body physiology really calmed down. Of course, I didn't I was so wired my whole life, I didn't even know I was fired up. I mean, that was a bit of a different discussion. So as always, awareness was a big deal, but I just, I mean, these thought patterns, as you know, are really, really disturbing. 
So what you said was that, okay, you're upset and agitated. Your body's physiology is off. So your brain's in sort of fired up state. So other things that may not be related to that particular thought start coming into play based on the body's physiology being fired up. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. And, yeah. and that's a big deal because I keep, because I'm trying to figure out a model because I pulled a bunch of people out of OCD and it's always about, again, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm not, I'm not advertising to be an over OCD expert, but having the worst, the worst experience coming up successfully, probably walked at least 30 or 40, mostly colleagues out of OCD. But what I'm learning is that it's also an incredibly common experience. So it's always around crossing the anger threshold. But I couldn't figure out why until you just made that comment that when your brain's fired up, you're pulling in all sorts of data. Is that correct? Yes. Does that yeah. makes sense to you. So, so let me give a, another a metaphor for your for your listeners, and you know, because part of the issue is, in essence, sort of not all thoughts are created equal. You know, some seem more risky. They seem more sticky. They seem more bothersome. And some of that's obvious. I mean, things that are bad are not, you know, we, we ruminate about good things too, right? right. Uh, you buy a Powerball ticket, I wonder if I'm gonna win. Uh, falling in love, you know, dating, people are constantly obsessing and thinking and having these intrusions, but they don't typically find them very negative. I mean, maybe they get frustrated, they can't concentrate at work a little bit, but we experience these things positively. So it's not that every intrusion is bad or every thought is bad. It's again, when they, when they have certain characteristics. And so, you know, a lot of this uh, is about what those characteristics of the thoughts or the context are. And our brain is absolutely hardwired at, at literally at a central level, you know, in the older evolutionarily older part of the brain. Uh, we have the limbic circuits and the amygdala, which are hardwired to be very sensitive to detect threat and threat broadly defined, right? Anything that's a threat to the integrity of the self. We used to think about that and maybe historically it really was largely physical existential threat, but, but very clearly it's now also social threat, cognitive threat, esteem threat, uh, all kinds of things. And so when, uh, thoughts or experiences or interactions or stimuli have characteristics that our brain perceives are threatening in, in those ways, our physiology responds. Well, I, I snuck in a, a really important word there, right? I said perceive, because we could sort of right. say, oh, you know, the world is threatening. And, and certainly some things are. If someone brandishes a weapon in my direction, okay. Uh, we generally agree on that. But all of a sudden we realize, wait a minute, my life history, my learning, my perceptions and appraisals of things, you know, there may be neutral stimuli uh, that give rise to these perceptions of threat that maybe are wrong or over-exaggerated or, or other aspects. And I wanna come back uh, to anger because, uh, you know, anger is one of those, right? Anger. Uh, often is a response to threat. Um, right. It happens under certain circumstances. So anger is particularly common when we see something as unjust or transgressive. So, you know, something unfair uh, or unjust is happening and particularly to me, uh, you know, that's really important. Although certainly we could, we could be angry about others as well. And what we see then is that that 
uh, magnifies those physiological responses. And uh, so as you think about, you know, why does it uh, feel to you through your own and, and others' experiences that that's a key hurdle is because anger-related cognitions and, and, and emotions, right, are uh, an engine that sustains that physiological arousal. And so, you know, it's a wonderful thing that our body floods with pro-inflammatory cytokines and we have sympathetic arousal. That, that helps us from uh, recovering from an injury or, or adaptively responding to a need. But physiologically, we hope that to dissipate minutes or hours later. But if I'm angrily still thinking about it hours or days later, my body continues to churn in that aroused state. And I start to put myself at risk. So to me, it's that inability to process anger that sort of keeps things sustained for long periods of times. And then I have another concept that, again, correct me if this is correct, is that the circuits become very strong and powerful each time you suppress them, again, like spinning a basketball on your finger. Then the metaphor I like to use is that of those dust devils in the desert. They become these spinning obsessive circuits that aren't rational. They don't respond to rational interventions. And then they keep your body's physiology fired up a good percent of the time. So you have these thoughts spinning around, then you have the reaction to them, which is angry. Then you point out that when your physiology is fired up, you are sensitized, but you're pulling in other data that's also unpleasant. And it gets, and again, it is, it is complicated, by the way. I'm not, I, I'm being a little simplistic to start the discussion, but I mean, the human body is 30 trillion cells and the brain itself is 80 billion cells and each neuron is connected to another 10,000 neurons. I mean, it's a pretty complex deal. So, so I have this concept, as you know, of these dust devils or mini tornadoes that to me are like obsessive thought patterns. I call it phantom brain pain. We know about phantom limb pain, we feel the limb, but you get these thought patterns that don't stop either. And they become, I call it phantom brain pain. We know phantom pain can occur in any part of the body, but it also seems when you get these ruminating thought patterns that you can't control, that's my concept is that they, they're this, I call it phantom brain pain. They're very powerful. They're very strong. They're not really subject to rational interventions. And again, the more you try to stop and suppress them or reason with them, you're just adding more neurological energy to them. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. And so uh, I hadn't thought about that, you know, that framing and certainly one of the core features of phantom limb pain is that, you know, you can experience pain in a physical location that no longer exists for you. Uh, that's, that's the phantom limb, right? Right. And so the idea is that, you know, this, this phantom brain pain is largely unrelated to uh, external factors or maybe disconnected. And, and as you suggest, may make it then resistant because I can't remove a stimulus or remove a a trigger and make it go away because it's it's somewhat unrelated, and I think the um, the the challenge more generally in in this is that as we practice or learn responses, and so if I have a stimulus or an experience and I, I do get angry and and have a certain response, if if I do start to experience that over and over and over, our brains will learn uh, to expect that. Right. I mean, in some sense, our brains are trying to anticipate these threats from our environment. That's why we're wired that way, right. such that 
uh, I'm better able to survive if I can anticipate a threat. But uh, we talk about that as vigilance. So we transition from responding to threat to looking for threat. And right. if you look hard enough, you start to see it. And so I think that's also part of what sustains this repetitive process is I'm, uh, you know, unintentionally in some sense, I'm automatically vigilant um, and my brain is searching for triggers uh, because they might be risky. They might represent some, some uh, threat that I've learned. And that again, makes them very resistant to easy change. Or, or easy therapeutic response. So Josh, we're out of time. Um, um, this is a huge topic and there's some really excellent things you just said. So I'm excited about this. So um, on our next podcast, which we'll do in a few minutes here, um, we have a problem. And then I just like to see jumping ahead in the equation, what are some of the general approaches to the solutions? How do we deal with these things? Because they're pretty common and sort of almost universal in a way. So I'd love to spend some time, you know, talking about just at least conceptualizing the structure of what a solutions might look like. So a um, couple of things, how do we, um, I know you're not in clinical practice, correct? Aren't you doing just full-time research? Correct. So um, two things, any final comments to the audience about looking at this process as its own phenomenon? And then um, I guess we'll talk about so is there any specific resources we would access through you in general? This is more, you're more the research behind all this, correct? Okay. So, okay. So um, any final comments as far as um, these thought patterns that sort of drive us all a little bit crazy? I, I think the one final comment uh, is another ironic problem. And that is that uh, people who struggle with this uh, much in the same way that we talked about the ironic effect of attempting to get a thought out of your head makes it come back. But if people uh, respond to these experiences, which as you note are, are common at some level with self-blame uh, or, or, or anger at the self, that will somewhat ironically make the situation worse. And so one of the sort of common but really challenging first steps uh, in managing these kinds of situations, I think, is to not blame the self and to sort of accept that, you know, having these kinds of thoughts and reactions uh, does not make you a bad person and is, in fact, relatively common. So, well, Josh, thank you very much. I'm excited about um, some of the things you've told us, and we'll see you in a few minutes. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Joshua Smythe, for being on the program today and for explaining the characteristics and mechanisms of unwanted repetitive thoughts in relation to chronic pain. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.